welcome to the Why We Argue podcast, the Future of Truth edition. This season of the podcast is produced by The Future of Truth, a project based at the University of Connecticut Humanities Institute that explores what truth is, where it's going, and why it matters for our democracy. The project is made possible by generous funding from the University of Connecticut and from the Henry Luce Foundation. It features discussions with publicly-minded thinkers about the cultural and political role of concepts like truth, fact, and information. Today, my guest is Professor Colleen Murphy. Colleen is the Rogers, Roger and Stephanie Joslin Professor of Law at the College of Law and a professor in the Departments of Philosophy and Political Science at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. Colleen is also the director of the Women and Gender and Global Perspectives Program in the Illinois Global Institute. Her work focuses on the theory of transitional justice, the modes of societal repair and reconciliation that are morally required in the wake of systematic, large-scale wrongdoing and injury. I invited her on the program today to talk about political healing and restoration in the United States. You can follow Colleen on Twitter at Dr. Colleen Murphy. That's at Dr. Colleen Murphy, all one word. Hi, Colleen. Hi, Bob. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thanks to you and to the University of Connecticut for the invitation to be here. Well, I'm glad you were able to accept. Um, so uh, there's obviously a lot to talk about <laughs> relative, uh, related to the themes uh, of the podcast. But, um, you know, there's been a good deal of talk these days, uh, the last several weeks, about political healing and unity and even moving on and turning the page uh, from the 2020 election and maybe especially um, the horrific episode at the Capitol on January 6th. Um, but it strikes me that a lot of this talk presumes that pages can be turned without much way by way of sort of reckoning with what's written on them. <laughs> um, that is that we can uh, move on from um, the election and the Capitol riot without coming to terms uh, with the events that transpired, for example, on January 6th. Now, your work on transitional justice shows that this error, um, or that this is an error, let's say. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so can you tell us a little bit about that framework and, and, and maybe um, uh, emphasize why the sort of confronting the, the, confronting the facts uh, uh, is so important uh, if we hope to actually move on? That's a great question. So the the sort of calls to look forward and um, not dig into the past or look into the past because of the thought that it's ugly or it'll be um, divisive to do so and so undermine the prospect for healing and unity. Um, it's sort of that kind of argument that was the... Um, the reason why transitional justice as a global practice and as a, a body of scholarship and, and theory um, began because the thought was that's a mistake. And we got to point out the mistakes with um, simply trying to move on from ugly episodes in a community's um, history or recent past or present. 
And so the two main mistakes is stem from the fact that the past doesn't go away just because you want it to. The conditions that led fellow citizens to believe it was appropriate or justified to storm the Capitol because their favored candidate didn't win. Um, the conditions that increasingly lead some of our fellow citizens to believe that the use of force um, to get their political way is justified. You know, those conditions are going to continue to be present, whether we acknowledge and address them or not. And also, um, you know, very often in moments where there's this urging to heal and unify and move on, it's um, cynical appeals to healing and unity, where the interest is not really in healing as such, but in avoiding uncomfortable conversations about accountability for wrongdoing that's happened. So the starting point for transitional justice um, theory and practice is that genuine healing, real healing of relationships that are damaged requires confronting and dealing with real problems, um, being open to being truthful and acknowledging what is damaged and what needs to be addressed and repaired if we are actually as a society going to be able to move forward in a way that doesn't involve reproducing wrongdoing or um, other forms of injustice that we've um, seen part of our community's history in the past and in the present. And so it's a theory that says we have to look backward if we're going to be able to look forward. And in looking backward, we ought to be doing that with an eye to vindicating victims, to holding perpetrators for wrongdoing to account, and fundamentally trying to to address wrongdoing in a way that will help us transform how we interact with each other as fellow citizens and also as citizens who are interacting as well with public officials. So I, is that kind of enough by way of giving a, a sort of sense of what transitional justice is about? Yeah, sure. That's perfect. Can I ask, a, um, you know, it might be a, a, a subtle philosopher's question, but sure. I hope that that's okay uh, for, for, uh, for this podcast. Um, so when you say that the, um, there's a something cynical in the, um, the call to turn the page and to, to, to move ahead or move on, um, you said that it, it's often a way of avoid. It's cynical because it's often a way of avoiding uh, accountability. But I wonder if, in some instances at least, those um, sentiments aren't deployed as a way of at least implicitly uh, disavowing accountability. That the thought is, let's move on because there isn't anyone. Yeah, you know, the, the 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 person that you know, the the thing we're dwelling on is implicitly at least assigning responsibility to somebody who, in fact, bears no responsibility. Do you think that that happens in some of these cases? I think in 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 some of the cases um, that can be an element that's present. I mean, one of one of the the reasons why dealing with wrongdoing is so fraught characteristically in transitional contexts, and these are contexts where you know societies paradigmatically are dealing with legacies of decades of civil conflict or a campaign of uh, repression carried out by a government, um, either by kidnapping and disappearing citizens or by having extensive um, uh, use of secret 
security forces trying to uncover and document the movement of fellow citizens. You know, that that activities which are often at the time that they're happening um, denied as occurring or denied as being the actions of either state actors or, you know, responsibilities placed onto other groups. So I bring that up to say that often um, the truth about what happened is contested. Um, whether or not the truth can, the ways in which it's contested can vary, but there can be contestation over literal facts of what occurred. Did people in fact get killed? Um, how many were killed? Were people tortured? How many were tortured? Um, and also, you know, disagreement, even if there's agreement that people were killed or folks were tortured, disagreement about who bears responsibility for it. Um, you know, in the aftermath of the Capitol riots, one of the commentators on Fox News was saying, as the initial response, you know, that those aren't Trump supporters. They don't they don't really look like us right. um, trying to displace responsibility onto other actors. And there's often, you know, disagreement about just how serious what happened was. And we see that with the Capitol riots as well. You know, is this something that's significantly important, so significantly important that we ought to dwell on it? Or is this something that um, doesn't warrant or merit the kind of attention um, that's being demanded? Um, So there's a lot of disagreement over what happened, who's responsible for it, how serious it is, that can um, be at the root of some calls to move on, either because um, to go and dig into the past is to open a Pandora's box, or out of a particular conviction of who bears responsibility. And in light of that conception, a thought that we ought to move on because this is not really focusing on what's most germane. Great, great. You know, I was um, uh, read, it was either in the the last day or so, um, uh, I think it was Lindsey Graham, um, referred to the impeachment trial as vindictive. Right. um, Which I guess is another way of sort of um, not merely deflecting uh, attempts to um, hold people accountable who might be at least causally in some sense responsible for what happened, um, but also a way to sort of cast a, um, a moral aspersion at the people who are interested in that accountability, um, which I, sus- I suspect is driven by the thought that um, uh, the uh, um, uh, the, the the prior president, the the person who was president on uh, um, uh, January sixth, um, is not in fact responsible. So any attempt to hold him to account uh, for those events is itself some kind of moral injury to him that we would be best to avoid. I think that can be part of it, and I think you know this this complaint of of attempts at accountability being. Um, really efforts at vengeance um, and not really about justice, you know, underscores that when you're engaging in processes of transitional justice, it's always a deeply political and characteristically divisive undertaking. And there's just no getting around it. So, you know, part of what distinguishes these these processes for dealing with the past um, from, you know, criminal trials as they occur in the ordinary course of the criminal justice system, which there are important criticisms of the structure of criminal justice as it in fact exists in the United States. 
but turning to processes that are holding political leaders to account, like the impeachment. Um, you know, a common refrain is that um, what's happening is mere uh, victor's justice, right? So we won and we're going to punish you. And all we're really doing is sort of acting on our ability to do this, given that you're the loser. Or reparations are critiqued as, insofar as they're offered, being mere tools to sort of buy victim silence, right? You want to bring up the past and a form of um, the way that these processes get complete is that they're, you know, we're, we're going to give you some money to, to, to be silent and, and, and stop bringing up um, things that we find uncomfortable to acknowledge or deal with. Or truth commissions, you know, an, a commission of inquiry, it's not really about accountability. It's just to get some words on a page, but nothing's going to change. So, you know, who is making criticisms of processes can vary, but um, the justification for any process has to show, bears a, an additional justificatory burden characteristically to show that what's being done is genuinely about justice. Um, it's about accountability. It's about establishing the truth about what happened during a particular period of a country's um, recent past and not about um, vindictiveness or not about um, asserting power because you're now in charge, um, contrary to what was the case in the recent past. Um, and so, you know, there's a broader context where these sorts of complaints are quite commonplace and shape how processes are justified. And, you know, the lesson of transitional justice, the scholarship and practice is not that you don't do or engage in these processes because they'll be criticized on these grounds, but that you have to take care in explaining what's going on in a way that will be able to counter these worries that what's going on is mere vengeance. Um, and sort of explaining why it's appropriate to, in the first instance, believe, or at least um, believe there's credibility in the claims that the president bears accountability and responsibility for what happened on the Capitol, for example. And I can try and make it more concrete if I need to, but that's that's no, no, that's that's perfect. So, and it, it makes a nice segue into the the, the sort of next um, on the next thing I wanted to ask because. Um, I'm wondering, again, not only in the, the, the current U.S. context, although that's obviously um, uh, very present to us, um, but uh, what role um, does, um, you know, things like misinformation, lies, um, and let's say um, opportunistic or maybe politically convenient retellings or revisions of the past that is the site of uh, uh, the focus of the call of the the call for transitional justice. So, to what role do, do those operations to sort of um, uh, either create a a, a counter impression of of what has occurred, or to cloud judgment about what has occurred, or to complicate uh, our sense of what has occurred? Uh, what role do those sorts of maneuvers play in actually per in perpetuating the injustice that uh, that the calls for transitional justice uh, are aimed at trying to rectify? So those calls are front and center. I right. mean, they're a major factor, what you were describing, in explaining not only why wrongdoing is able to happen in such a widespread manner, um, but also why it's so critical to have processes that try to establish what in fact occurred. 
um, when you have human rights violations um, that are systemic or or widespread in a, a given case. So, you know, folks like to think of themselves as moral, basically good people. And that's true um, of uh, most human beings and a lot of the people who become implicated in horrific atrocities. And so there has to be mechanisms for individuals and communities to be able to um, deal with wrongdoing um, and especially individuals and communities who are either benefiting from wrongdoing or are perpetrating wrongdoing or in other ways are complicit in wrongdoing. And um, you find as these mechanisms for um, not confronting what individuals or communities are responsible for, these different forms of denial that Stanley Cohen lays out in his wonderful book, um, States of Denial, Knowing About Atrocities and Suffering. So you find, you know, as when you look at Military juntas, for example, in in South America, like Argenti- Argentina, is um, from the late seventies and early eighties. That's one of the ones I write about in my book, where military leaders would just flat out say, "You know, we don't have political prisoners. No one is being kidnapped. So just deny." You know, tens of thousands of people, citizens, were in fact um, kidnapped by plainclothes police officers and held in detention, often tortured, and in many cases killed. But a sort of you know, literal denial of what occurred. Genocide denial is quite common in, in contexts where genocide happened, where in some cases it's literally denying that people died and that where people were targeted on the basis of a particular identity. And um, then you have forms that of are acknowledging something as happening, what's, what Cohen calls interpretive denial, but framing in a way that it's not, you know, it's not that bad. So um, one form is to say, you know, yeah, there was torture, but it was really regrettable excess. You know, so, so what we sanctioned wasn't really that, but um, what particular security force officers or officials did went beyond what we would normally allow or, or displacing it as the responsibility of a few bad apples. Um, also, you know, we, we see it with, with Senator Tom Cotton's um, recent quote with respect to slavery, that it was a quote unquote necessary evil, where you're, you know, you're saying it was evil, but in some sense justified um, because it was necessary instead of saying, you know, this is a crime that um, for which there is no justification that can ever be given. It never is necessary and it always is evil. So, you know, in, in ways that downplay the necessity of individuals or communities sort of coming to terms with what they've permitted or allowed or engaged in. And then finally, this implicative, who's to blame? And you find this all over U.S. discourse, where it's, you know, um, by making what's going on um, not about us, right, Um, then it's we don't have to account for what we're doing. Um, and we can deny or hide from ourselves the reality of what we're responsible for. And all of this is ways that um, distort the damage that's occurred, prevents communities from fully coming to terms with injustice in the forms that it's taken at a public level. It has specific harms for victims um, who are often you know, treated with dismissal and derision when they try to demand 
some sort of knowledge or, or accountability and reparation for what's happened to them. So, you know, this, this, um, the misinformation that you were referring to and the refusal to acknowledge or want to engage in the truth about what happened is often, um, you know, at the core of why we see atrocities when we do and um, why atrocities become possible to see again in the future. Um, so one of the, the mantras of transitional justice is never again. And never again occurs by drawing a line between what you permitted in the past and what you'll allow to happen in the future. But if you don't acknowledge what happened in the past, then you haven't drawn a line between that and what you're going to permit in the future. Right, right, right. Um, so, you know, that was very um, helpful. And I guess I'm wondering if, um, in addition to the the, the kinds of um, maneuvers you were just describing, um, there isn't um, uh, an additional one or a version of 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 of, of one of the uh, um, uh, kinds of uh, strategies you were describing mm -hmm. for sort of dispersing responsibility. So um, I'm thinking of. Um, uh, President Trump saying good people on both sides, right. uh, <laughs> which right. I'm assuming in part we had the implicature that there were bad people on both sides too. Yeah. So, um, and then a couple, I guess it was a week or two ago, um, it was somebody in the house, I think, uh, maybe it was a senator, I'm not sure, said that um, we all bear some responsibility. I mean, by all, mm -hmm. he means every American. We all mm -hmm. bear some responsibility for what happened on January 6th. Right. Is um, that kind of dispersal that, that the, the the class of people um, that must be held accountable becomes so large and all-encompassing that ultimately there's, you know, the, 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 the effort to hold any particular person accountable itself becomes sort of morally futile or, 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 or maybe itself in error. No, that's right. That's right. So, so these are, these are great, um, um, sort of examples, um, to bring up. So on the first point, you know, it's often true, um, in cases of where there's transitional justice, that there were atrocities, um, committed on both sides, but what's not true is that they were committed equally. Right. So one of the, um, you know, tasks and mandates of truth commissions is to document, okay, you know, and establish, for example, that 80% of atrocities that happened were at the hands of government, that it was not a sort of, and this is the both sides, there are good people on bad side, by implication, bad people on both sides. Right. You know, it may be that that's true, but not on both sides equally. Right. Um, and, and also, you know, um, another version is sort of conflating the reasons why, for, for, for example, violence would be undertaken you know, in the name of um, trying to achieve one's liberation versus in the name of trying to maintain oppression. And sort of by conflating all sides, not looking at the reasons for the sake of which um, individuals are acting in the way that they are, which isn't to say that any atrocity is justified, but just to say that we can also distinguish the, the defensibility of the underlying cause or goal for which people are acting and not all of goals are equally defensible. Right. Um, and, um, you know, part of what I find so interesting about transitional justice is because it is the way in which it raises all of these really complicated questions of responsibility. Um, 
you know, there's institutional responsibility. So the South African Truth and Reconciliation Commission had hearings on the media, on churches, on businesses, you know, on the legal profession, looking at the ways in which these different institutional actors were were implicated in um, the extraordinary violence the TRC focused its mandate on. But at the same time, the, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission named individuals, right? Individual perpetrators who were responsible for engaging in particular acts of torture or assassination. Individual victims who were harmed in very particular ways um, by being targeted by security forces in this way. So, you know, one of, um, one of the things that transitional justice calls for is nuance, that you can talk about um, the ways in which institutions are implicated, and there's a lot of discussion about the media in various ways in all of these conversations, or churches, but that doesn't shift or take away from the role that particular actors played in um, their role either in carrying out discrete acts of violence or in being especially influential, when you think about someone like President Trump, in inciting violence. Um, and so, you know, again, the, the sort of we're all the same is an attempt to sort to flatten the moral field in, in ways that doesn't do justice to the reality of what we're dealing with. It's complicated. Yeah. 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 That's fabulous. Um, so, you know, you've been very generous with your time and I, you know, in the, the, the couple of minutes we have left talking to one another, um, just wanted to ask sort of, uh, you know, maybe a cruel question given that we've got only a few minutes. (laughs) Um, so, you know, um, assuming that, um, the full processes of transitional justice, will probably not be enacted in the United States um, with respect to um, uh, the events um, or maybe the culminating event of January 6th and Mm -hmm. things that came before it that seem to be leading up to it. Um, Assuming that there's something about the, um, the popular calls to need to move the country ahead or as as Biden and, and Harris say, you know, to heal, Right. Uh, the soul of the nation, assuming there's something to that. Um, what do you think the best that we could hope for is? So I'm an optimist, despite working <laughs> on atrocities and horrific wrongdoing for 20 years. Um, I think you have to be to be able to deal with the kind of material that I work right. with um, day in and day out. So, you know, so I think, so here's one thing to say. Um, the question of accountability doesn't end with or isn't exhausted by the question of um, impeachment or conviction or lack thereof for President Trump. And so, you know, another one of the, just the, the core insights of transitional justice is there's lots of different ways in which people can be held to account for their role in wrongdoing. There's lots of different ways in which communities can try to engage in processes of repair. And so, you know, you see a lot of these efforts informally in uh, corporations looking at the role their employees may have played um, in the January 6th events. And in some cases, you know, individuals have been fired. You see um, law enforcement looking um, to try and, and see who in their ranks was was present on that day. And you see suspensions that are happening. So I think you'll, you'll see a lot of diffuse efforts at accountability. Um, 
And I think, you know, also for President Biden and uh, Vice President Harris, you know, there's a particular opportunity they have um, given their um, quite explicit commitment to racial justice and given Biden's own personal um, biography and the way that he's been quite intimately interested in and involved in processes of transitional justice um, or efforts to deal with the troubles in Northern Ireland, you know, a, an opportunity for them to think about establishing a commission to look more systematically at these questions. So I, again, I think I'll put it this way. I've been working on transitional justice for 20 years, and I've never seen a moment in the United States like the present in terms of a window of opportunity for seriously undertaking efforts to deal with our own past. And they might not be perfect. Um, they might not be, um, the demand for that might not be satisfied with the, the trial that, that's about to be undertaken. But there's a lot of local efforts, and at least there's a discourse, there's a public discourse about the need for this that I think is really exciting. And so, yeah, so again, I'm, I'm more of an optimist of where we might end up. And I think where we end up will not be like we've ended up in the past, and that's just with the collective um, uh, sort of dis- efforts to sort of simply move on right. and, and, and not pause and, and, and grapple with our past. Well, Colleen, that's that's a wonderful uh, uh, um, point to end on. Thank you so much for joining me on the Why We Argue podcast. Thanks again for the opportunity, Bob. That's great. And thank you, uh, listener. Um, you've been listening to the Why We Argue podcast, the future of truth edition. Uh, I want to thank our podcast team, Toby Napolitano at the University of California at Merced, handles our sound, Elizabeth Della Zazara at the University of Connecticut Humanities Institute is our communications coordinator, and Ju Johnson handles research at the University of Connecticut for the podcast. I also want to give special thanks to uh, Matt Garigula for his creative inspiration. Um, the podcast, again, is produced by the University of Connecticut Humanities Institute's The Future of Truth Project with generous funding from the University of Connecticut and from the Henry Luce Foundation. Thank you for listening. Bye for now.